you're listening to Consequential Podcast with me today, as always, Roger Hart. Hello. And you're not Lucy. I'm not Lucy. I'm Graham. And who are you? Tell people who you are. Um, I'm Graham Slight. I guess I'm here because partly I know Roger and partly I write about science fiction and stuff and I help with the very wonderful Encyclopedia of Science Fiction and I write introductions to the Galant Science Fiction Masterwork series and I review SF in various places. But I know a bare minimum about comics, which will probably become apparent in, you know, like about 10-15 seconds. Well, we know a bare minimum about sci-fi, so that, that hasn't really stopped it's, us prattling on. So It's this, like a cultural exchange thing. Yeah, this could just become a world of confusion. Yes, it really, really could. We're out uh, of our natural habitat today as well. I've, I've we lured are. you into my palace of stark iniquity. We're in, a, we're in an impromptu studio built out of a dinner table, an Ikea sofa, and uh, rather a lot of gin. And floor, and, and walls, to be fair. There yeah, are, there is some flooring and wallitude. It's palatial, really. It's mm. better than I deserve. So is the thrashing. Roger, what have you been reading? Um, since the last podcast, not very much. I have really only read the third volume of Mind Management, which is a fairly hefty thing. But, um, and the problem here is that we've been super professional, and this is our second recording in a week. Yes. Um, and we're busy people. And I've spent the rest of the intervening time swearing at computer hardware, so I've not really... Mm. Focus on Mind Management. Tell us about that. So, um, I've talked about this in the podcast before. I think it might have been one of my picks of the year last time. I can't remember exactly. But it's by Matt Kent and... Just Matt Kent. Uh, oh, yes, he's drawing as well. Yeah. So, which is, which considering how hefty it is, is quite a thing. that They're gorgeously produced. Um, it's very watercolory. We have talked about the art before, I think. Yeah. It's a bit like Tim Sale, um, in a lot of ways, the, who did... Uh, Batman Long Halloween. Oh, yes, yes. And the Marvel Colors series with Jeff Loeb. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. No, no, just looking at it, um, I was reminded, and I've not read it, but in the British Library exhibition, which I guess we'll get to at some point, yeah. there was a, 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 a chunk from the Alan Moore, is it Oscar Zarate, A Small Killing? Yeah. Yes. And it looks Quite very so. much like yes. that sort of... Um, quite similar visual style it's yeah. a bit more you see more of the underlying paper feel from the watercolour I think in mind management mm-hmm. yeah. it lets it lets the washes creep through more but a small killing actually well, was, was one of the one of the notes that I made I've not read it before I've been meaning to for a while and then seeing it talked about at the BL exhibition exhibit, yeah. exhibit kind of clinched it and I thought I'd want it no um, mind management is a really interesting one at the moment the first volume is tremendously self-contained and is a pretty good government conspiracy psychic powers sort of story. You've got people with unusual mental abilities trained by the government for sort of subverting the populace or doing black ops. Um, The program is then disbanded, they're cast to the winds, and then some people kind of try and recover what was going on. Mm -hmm. Told through the story of Meru, the um, a a lady who seems to have um, amnesia and is trying to put it all back together. Mm -hmm. And the sort of, the sting in it, the twist in it, is that she has been left a series of kind of implicit psychic cues, uh, clues, sorry, enabling her to track down uh, the kind of reality-warping-er agent of the mind management program. And it turns out that she's been doing this again and again and again. Um, and every time every time she finds him, he confesses all to her, wipes her memory, and sets her back off on the journey again. 
So this is Inception slash Moon slash Source Code, pretty much. Yeah, I think there's there's probably a hefty dose of Apocalypse Now in there as yeah. well. It's there's a, I mean, pretty much half the story is a journey up the river to find this man. And uh, each successive time she finds him, it gets worse as more and more people find out about stuff, and there yeah. has more and more consequences. And the first one was was brilliant and very clips and self-contained and quite creepy and atmospheric. And then they carried on. The second one tells a slightly different story, gives us some more background on the mind management program, introduces some more characters, and it's good, but it sort of feels a bit precarious after... It feels a bit tacked on to the first one. The first one, what they could have just left it there. Hmm. The third one is a, is very much a return to form. It's structured around the story of a particular type of sleeper agent, um, the sort of from the Russian equivalent of the mind management program, um, mm-hmm. the Matroshka agents. Oh, you meet them in the first one, don't yeah. you? Just... Sorry, is this set in Cold War? or is It's it... set in the present day, but okay. it's got sort of tendrils into sort okay, of Cold right. War stuff quite a okay. lot. So a lot of the characters will have grown up in that sort of yeah. period. So the mm-hmm. childhood conditioning stuff is very mm-hmm. much from there. Um, and what appears to be happening now is that you've got two, maybe three factions. Um, the, uh, the sort of uh, reality-warping guy from the Mind Management Program, Harry Lyon, yeah, I know. Yes. And, but he is, Possibly not his real name. Yes. Um, I don't think he even remembers his real name. But um, his kind of group of, of misfits trying to reconstruct and do something about what happened with the mind management program. Um, an agent called the Eraser, I think a memory wiping um, person, and her group trying to reconstruct it. And they're both trying to recruit discarded agents for whatever purpose mm-hmm. and then Maru and her um, possibly boyfriend Bill kind of caught in the middle and this is sort of the story of some stuff that happens in the background with the Matroshka agents catalyzing Maru's sort of need to pick a faction and decide what's going to happen Okay, it's, it's um, I almost wish they'd done this as the second volume it feels like a much cleaner gear change into long arc storytelling I think the 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 first volume was meant to be standalone, and then it mm. sold well enough that they decided mm. to continue it. Unsurprising, it's brilliant. Um, just going by the cover, it does look like there's a sort of beatific '50s style housewife with a semi-automatic rifle. Yes. Um, so it the the sort of the reds under the bed style mm. um, Cold War threat. Your neighbours could be commies. It seems to be playing on that. It's so a, a, a clear half of this volume is that is one of the sleeper agents in suburb suburbia and the little the chat headings. I assume they will have been the covers from the individuals, um, or is it is it a trade? Is it pure trade? I, can, I don't know. No, it comes out as, in, as okay. individual. I issues. think they've been the covers. Are these sort of light, magazine style lifestyle manuals, but all with little double meanings? So um, how to cover up your body, mm-hmm. um, uh, tips for weed killers and. Things to do with weed killer, it's sort of various kind of urban anarchy or sort of murder in the suburbs stuff. It's got a gorgeous thing running through it. So the sort of Truman Showish. This is not. This looks as if it's right unless you read read the text in a certain way. Unless you um, in places, you then sliding into more explicitly. Uh, yes. This is the life of a sleeper agent waking up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But working. It's not totally immediately obvious which of the three suburban housewives mm-hmm. is. The sleeper agent, they all behave particularly oddly. And then it turns out this is because part of the remit of one of them is to make everyone around them behave oddly so as to create the preconditions for anarchy so as to kill a lot of people. Yeah. It's quite intricate. Um, it's nice. And messy. And then there's that three-page pullout of a horrific plane crash into a suburban street. Which uh, you described as incredibly pretty and uh, posted a picture of on Twitter in, in loving and glowing fashion. 
Physical, just piece of work. You're a piece of work. Your face is a piece of work. Graham, what have you been reading? <laughs> if I didn't know better, I'd think you were changing the subject. <laughs> well, I, I mean, as I was saying earlier, I, I, I'm probably way more, way more mainstreamy and obvious in my in my comics reading than, than uh, the two of you or, or, or Lucy. Uh, I've relatively recently finished um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, on the one hand, I and this is the bring it up to two thousand and nine iteration. On the one hand. It's wonderful seeing the kind of density of stuff they pack into it. Yeah. And and it's particularly delightful seeing who the Antichrist is. Um, and uh, and the way that that's resolved Indeed. is yes. kind of it's perfunctory and very very peculiar. Is this century? Yes. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's like um, you want a Deus Ex Machina, right? Here's a Deus Ex Machina. Um, I can't help feeling that I'm I didn't get 80-90% of the references so I I found Century to be a struggle Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that I didn't find the first two volumes which are the the ones that I consider to be the proper League of Extraordinary Gentlemen when they were fun and we've got Black Dossier in brackets yeah I so Black Dossier, I wouldn't say I particularly enjoyed, but I did understand it. Yeah. Um, but I think I struggled with Century quite a lot, mainly, mainly because it's just it's not quite as good, and I think it's a little bit more scatty um, plot-wise. It's not particularly tight. Um, and it does that thing of they're dealing with stuff that's in copyright, and so they're a little bit... Um, Cautious, Wary. yes, yeah. Um, so the sort of references to um, London Orbital and things like that, yeah. but they're very, very sketchy about what they actually do yeah. with them. Um, am I right in remembering that Black Dossier was held up or not published or, or, or whatever because of the of the James Bond stuff? Yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, I uh, bought that when I was in California about six or seven mm-hmm. years go um and i think it was like a year and a half two years after that that it came out in the uk yeah. it was not worth getting uh ahead of time mm. but it did at least take the piss out of jack kerouac which i was yeah. i always enjoy no um, i mean my, my feeling with century was you know sort of drowning in these waves of obscure references and oh, the, the you know once every five or six pages when i got one you know like when Voldemort shows up at the Rolling Stones in Hyde Park. Yeah. Thank God, something I can hang on to. Um, but yeah, uh, scatty, I suppose, is one way of putting it. I mean, I I really love Alan Moore's work in general, and Voice of the Fire, for instance, is one of my you know half dozen favourite novels. And what he keeps saying he's got this five hundred thousand word novel about the history of England or something like that. Oh, that's God. terrifying. Um, which. I would love to see. I mean, voice, voice in the fire, voice of the fire is not easy anyway. Given it's that it's a sort easy. of, uh, <laughs> it's it's basically the the story of Northampton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from sort of borderline pre linguistic man to present day. Yeah. Um, which is very Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
and 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 and, and if he wants to do that at, at, at ten times the length, good good luck to him. Yeah, I I don't know if I would go out of my way to read that. Um, I would be curious. I've not actually read Voice in the Fire. I should. Um, but yeah, so so you know, Alan Moore is clearly clearly a national treasure, and and and, and, and so on. Um, the other stuff I've been reading actually to, to, on the same subject, I cleared out a bunch of my old comics and magazines to the loft a couple of weekends ago. And in doing so, I dug out um, what was actually really my first contact with comics, which is old issues of Doctor Who Weekly, 1979-1980-81, with main strips written by people like Mills and Wagner and illustrated by Dave Gibbons. And backup strips without the Doctor, written by Al Moore and, and illustrated by David Lloyd, mm. um, which I, I believe in some of their very first stuff. Um, and, and, and it's it's interesting to see. You know, David Lloyd looks absolutely like V for Vendetta David Lloyd, even yeah. at that stage. Um, seeing some of, his stu- uh, some of his stuff at um, the exhibition in the British Library yeah. yesterday, the black and white uncoloured stuff is just way ahead of the, the, the actual printed reproductions as yes. well with the colouring. It's just... I would actually like to see a black and white version of... Uh, an oversized version of Viva Vendetta because that stuff was way, way nicer. I mean, the colouring is quite sensitively done, as I remember, in all the sort of sepia tones and stuff. It's sort of green green and pink and quite minimally applied. Yeah, but you're, you're absolutely right, be lovely to see that, you know, a, a better resolution. See, this is something that IDW have been doing recently, mm-hmm. the artists' editions, which are uh, high-resolution reproductions of the original artwork mm-hmm. for, like, John Romita's Spider-Man or mm-hmm. Tarzan comics or yeah. Sergio Argonne's yeah. stuff. Um, and they're really, really good for getting a view on the process and seeing how things are actually assembled, because mm-hmm. they're they're all obviously pre-digital, and you can just basically see Tipex and sellotape and the mm. stuff that's basically been cleared away by the printing process and retouching as they've been, as they've gone to production. Mm. It's really interesting to see how things are put together in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 not, I don't know if this is off topic or not, but I, I'm a long-time Doonesbury fan, um, and as I understand it, the deal there is that Gary Trudeau writes the whole thing and does does the pencils and he has another guy who inks it and also puts in the textures which which get which are more and more adventurous as time goes by and the uh there's certainly been out in the world and you can google them fairly easily the the before and after the the the, the sketches and and, and and what uh what winds up what winds up on the page and we're all aware mm-hmm. i assume that bill watson drew some comics in the last week. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so Bill Watson of Calvin and Hobbes has uh, returned and basically did three panels yes. of... Um, what was the cartoon called? Yeah, it's um, Pearls Before Swine. Thank you. He's returned on. Thank you. Um, it wasn't announced, and uh, it, it basically... It's well enough known that people wondered who the guest artist was, but I don't think anyone... Guest. I wish those two words sounded yeah. more different. Um, but yeah, uh, because he just hasn't done anything for twenty years. He mm. just well, as soon as Calvin and Hobbes stopped in nineteen ninety five, he just vanished. Mm. Um, the fact that he did a 
He did a poster for the film Stripped, which is a sort of history of comics and newspaper strips. Uh, and that got a big reaction. The fact that he was actually drawing gag panels mm. um, meant that people kind of lost their shit, really. Mm. Um, it's it's really nice to see that he's so well-loved that even the tiniest bit of art from him has mm. this massive outpouring from mm. Calvin and Hobbes fans. Um, I imagine it's the most traffic that Pearls Before Swine has ever had. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed the website stayed up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's the sort of thing that no one believed until it was confirmed by the Washington Post, which is yeah. <laughs> quite impressive. Uh, just how much of a, a recluse Bill Watson is that that you have to have a national newspaper confirm that he drew a bit of a comic before anyone will believe it at all. Dave, what have you been reading recently? God, you have heard this before, haven't you? I, I, I there's the I've I've got spontaneous spontaneous dialogue and professionalism written ah. on the back of my hand. Uh, I, I, uh, for a totally separate uh, podcast. Yeah. And tight analytical focus. Yeah. That was, that was our goal when we started, wasn't it? It's really just swearing, swearing in gin. Um, so I went to LCAF yesterday, the East London Comics Art Festival, mm-hmm. um, which was absolutely heaving even when it opened, uh, which was impressive. So I, Basically ran in, did a lap and ran out again because it was uh, warm, crowded, smelly. Uh, and also I'd fallen in the river the day before and all of my money was wet and I didn't want people to, you know... Take wet money? No, I wanted to give them the wet money, but I didn't want them to get a chance to talk to each other about that weird guy with all the wet money. Uh, so, you know, I had to get I had to get out of there. You did You did smell a little bit like a swamp creature. Yeah, I, I did. I, that was, a, that was, was an Alan Moore reference. Olfactory cosplay. Yeah. Yeah, also... Shut the fuck up. Um, Moving uh, on. Did you enjoy being rescued by nudists? I like not drowning. The details are irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> They're not entirely irrelevant. I was rescued I by nudists. I, I I didn't see. I was, probably for the best. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happens when you fall in the river is you're quite focused on keeping your head above water. Um, Were you punting, rowing? Kayaking. Okay. We've digressed somewhat. Dave, did you go to the East London Comics Festival? <laughs> I did. Did you, did you buy stuff that I you'd like to talk to us did, about? I did, I did. Um, so I picked up a load of stuff by Piao Studios. Um, mm-hmm. That's fun to say. Um, How many umlauts? No umlauts. One exclamation mark. Hmm. Um, so I saw them in uh, in Toronto, but they basically sold out of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do lots of stuff that's sort of manga and band dessinée influence. So I picked up one called Internal Affairs, which is almost kind of childlike um, manga, almost, which is by uh, Patrick Crotty. I think that's how it's pronounced. But mm-hmm. uh, it's um, bizarre, kind of over-designed, mecha-based uh uh, comics, which sort of throws in a lot of influence from things like Robotech, um, also makes references to the PlayStation game Parappa the Rapper pretty much constantly. Um, and the whole thing, in fact, all of their comics are all uh, Resograph printed, so they're basically a sort of like a series of screen prints laid over each other mm. by essentially a fancy photocopier. Um, so they've got a very distinct look. Um, and just just in just in blue and red. 
This one is just in blue and red, so that's, I mean, that's really beautiful and I would highly recommend it. There's another one called Wrecked Ship, which is, looks far more like um, 1960s sort of Astro Boy-esque uh, manga. And that one's a lot more subtle in, in the way that it's colored. It's got sort of overlays yeah. of the same colors and it looks kind of that beautiful. Is beautifully colored. Um, so that's Wrecked Ship by uh, Valentin Seich, I think, which mm -hmm. is kind of a little adventure story. Very, very pretty. And uh, the other one I got was Three Blades by Elliot Alregius. Alregius. Mm -hmm. I genuinely don't know. They're all Scandinavian. I can't pronounce the names. Um, which is just basically a sketchbook of sword fighters of different elks. And that's... Um, I think that's that's one of the nicest looking books. It's not really a comic. It's just uh, bits of design, but it looks great. And very pretty. Though. The um, the overlaid printing gives it this sort of slightly fuzzy look, which is really quite cool. It looks like concept art for a much better version of Warhammer. Yeah, basically, it's um, it's just pulling in stuff from everywhere. But um, Power Studios they had about fifteen different books across the three people that uh, that makes up there, all of which looked really. Really fascinating. There's one called Narva that I got uh, oh, yeah. for you that you haven't read yet. You shit. Um, and they all sort of sit, seem to sit in this sort of um, the sort of slightly ephemeral Bandesine sci-fi style. Mm -hmm. uh, everything's a bit imprecise, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of Jodorowsky Mobius sort of dreamlike pseudo sci-fi place, fantasy yeah. sci-fi. Um, but all of their stuff looks really, really great, and you can buy it online. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Shiny. Yeah. So I also picked up um, Isabel Greenberg's Rights, Customs, and Histories of the Great Empire of Migdal Bavel, which is a, um, basically a little bit of um, prose and illustration that adds on to um, the Encyclopedia of Early Earth, which we talked about oh, a, few, uh, a few couple of months ago yeah. now. Um, Which I'm still not sure whether I would like or not. Bits of it sound joyous. I don't know. I think the best way to find out is read it. Oh, I could do that. You could do that. Um, I really like her sense of humour um, and the illustration style. You might find it a little too whimsical. There's definitely whimsy in there. A whimsy does bring me up in hives. Yeah. Also, not everyone dies. Um, no one has noticeable battles with the erectile dysfunction, you know, you're not going to get <laughs> any of the stuff that usually brings you peculiar schadenfreude less joy. Um, just f forgive me for sort of talking about the comics or whatever. Yeah, no, but but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my initial reaction looking at the Isabel Greenberg was, oh, isn't that nice? It's sort of woodcutty. And then, then sort of looking through it, I, I went, no, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that because you've got woodcutty. I guess black tones, but with tints put over them, with with with, with grayscale mm. stuff put over them, with um, a sort of treatment of perspective. I guess you don't often see in in, in yeah pure woodcutty stuff. I'm not sure how her stuff is done. Whether it's woodcut or pen and ink, I think it's. I don't know. This looks like uh, it's been block printed. It's got that sort of mm. slightly sketchy. Um, uh, the look that you get from a roller going over yeah, something, yeah, yeah. essentially. Um, speaking of which, I also picked up Gareth Brooks's uh, 
Ah. latest opus. Ah. Um, the Big Book of Dongs. The the Big Book of Dongs, or uh, I believe it's called The Land of My Heart Chokes on Its Own Abundance. Yes, yes it is. And Can we please have a, a bam, sorry, on titles of more than two words? <laughs> well... I mean, it's it's a good title for the book because it's completely indescribable. It's, it's, um, a, it's a lovely thing. It's, it's well, stitched, welcome it's, to non sequitur Sunday. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. It's loosely stitch bound and full of little men gambling about with giant dongs. Yeah, I, I think I don't think anything more than that would spoil it. It just doesn't really have a plot. I that, as far as I can tell, it's just horrifying. Flipping through it in the pub, it seemed to be almost an anthropological sketchbook, but from the depth of a slightly intriguing imagination. So it felt it felt to me like a peculiar, sketchy, static instantiation of a nature documentary. There seemed to be a lot of life cycle stuff. There's this world where everything's bizarrely phallic, and there appears to be, as far as I could tell, a monogendered species scuttling about the place. And then there were a bunch of kind of sex and birth motifs that just seem to be life cycle happening on a landscape I think I need to go back and dig into it but it's um, I mean we, we talked about the Black Project which is Gareth Brooks' sort of last first full novel yes. that he did Arts which Rocks, Vagina Fun Time yes which was faintly horrifying um, I enjoyed it Lucy read it and was faintly terrified but did like it you seemed to freak out gently at it I, I struggled with it. I thought it was objectively very good, but not, not to me, enjoyable. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think this, is again, is going to be a hard, uh, a hard book for most people to get through, but I get the impression that Gareth Brooks does not care, otherwise he would not draw a book, or indeed embroider a book full of dong people. So after my flying tour of Elkaf, I... Met up with you, and uh, we went to the Comics Unmasked exhibition at the British Library. We did. Which, Graham, you've also mm-hmm. been to, so we can all talk about the same thing Yay. in a near first for the for this podcast. I think it's the second time this has happened, um, which is really quite extraordinary, and uh, speaks, speaks to our general standards of professionalism. Uh, and organisation, and coordination, and yeah. that stuff. So the the subtitle of this thing is something along the lines of uh, Art and Anarchy in the UK, um, which is a theme they, God bless them, really did push through heavily throughout the entire thing. So here's the thing, right? Both the title and the subtitle have me kind of on a back foot wanting not to like it for two fairly separate reasons. Calling it Comics Unmasked... um, lays a little bit of ground it's kind of that's that basically that intimates we're going to talk about superheroes we're going to take the mask off we're going to you know I'm over reading here you can see what they're packing into that this slight implication that I don't know I think with a with a, a with a two word title I think it's pretty easy to make that leap yeah um, and then art and anarchy new subversion fair enough T- lassoing it onto art I, I I was primed for one of the things they were trying to do which is basically desperately, graspingly authorising this stuff as real books honest. Uh, okay. That's that's an interesting reading. I mean, the sort of... The version I came out of it with was they were trying to say comics have been transgressive in various ways. Mm. 
One which is a political. Yes. One which is a sexual. One which is a sort of vague, let's say, alchemical, which may may or may not have been a bit of a stretch. And and oh, um, kind of. And 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 that, and one one of which I guess is violence and and, mm. and and gore and stuff, and that they were trying to make an argument for it as this is where society puts some of its stuff. That's in one way or another too dangerous to go yeah. in other places. And I could sort of buy that as an argument. I actually thought if... that was the successful part. Okay. Um, broadly. So we've probably... You've tipped our hand. Let's just, let's just carry on. Um, yes, so a large part of it was the uh, reflecting on kind of comics as a, politi- as, a, as a force for reflecting the politically transgressive or the somehow otherwise transgressive. So, as you say, the violent or the sexual, yeah. or the profane. There was a lovely little section of kind of contextualised um, religious subversion. Um, and I, th- I thought it was reasonably successful of making the argument that comics, um, especially and in, in particular it was focused on British comics, had a strong history of answering the call to the subversive and anarchic in society. I thought it was quite yeah. heavy-handed at making that point in some places, and I thought the work would have, yeah. some of the works would have stood on their own without the window dressing of the mannequins in Guy there Fawkes' masks. There, there, were, there were tons and tons of beef for Vendetta mannequins yeah. throughout. Yeah. And one would have been fine, because the point they're making really with that is here is the most sort of famous image that has permeated mainstream culture from a subversive, a reactive British comic but one would be fine everyone knows we've found that it, 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 and it doesn't need to be spread absolutely everywhere across and the entire having family. the mannequins in the what are now popular I think what are now popularly thought of as anonymous masks rather than mm. even Guy Fawkes yep. um, having them hanging around in gaggles with gritty urban background noise that's gritty urban with capitals and a trademark um, just looked really patronising it Felt like I got a little whiff, just just a little one, of someone that's never met a modern young person trying to imagine what modern young people are like. Possibly, um, I'm being I'm being harsh, but it did a few things like that that put my back up. The visual design of it was clumsy at best. It was poorly lit and not well laid out, and the mannequins were just the final straw for that. Really, it, that was that was sloppy. I have some good points I want to get to. But sure. I, I, I certainly agree with you on some of the design stuff. You know, there were there were a number of displays, particularly I think in the second half, where there was a straight line between the light source, your head, if you were looking at any exhibit, and the exhibit itself. So to look at yeah. it, you just put it in the shadow. Everything was also mounted really low down, yeah. so only one person could ever see anything at a time. Books are not inherently easy to exhibit, and this did not work around that. I'm okay with stuff being mounted relatively low down for sort of wheelchair accessibility and so on, mm. but um, as, as, as Roger says, they're just not easy to exhibit. Mm. And so I was delighted, boggled, to see they had one of John Dee's magic books mm. in the Wacky Alchemy section. That was beautiful. Uh, absolutely beautiful artifact. And... Clearly, you know, 500-year-old handwriting is not going to be that easy to read. But it was so far away from the glass and, and, mm. and so on that you just couldn't make out anything of, of any detail. I also didn't totally buy the line they tried to draw between D to Crowley, fair enough, that works. D to Crowley to Lovecraft for some reason, from Lovecraft to pop culture to comics. I didn't, I didn't, that didn't work for me. No. Crowley um, and Lovecraft were 
broadly contemporary, although Crowley's main activities were after Lovecraft was really writing. Mm. And Crowley's main activities were basically masturbating. And taking heroin. Mm. And mountain climbing. Yeah. You know, the Holy Trinity. Um, no, it, uh, a good point. Yes. Which I sort of went along with sort of two gaps in my knowledge that I wanted filled. And the, the, the first one, which it was actually really good on, was how you get from, let's say, Hogarth or someone like that doing caricatures art or cartoons or whatever, that, that satirised Western society, what the line is from that to the comic strip as a form. Yeah. And there was a lot of really interesting mm-hmm. Victorianish or early 20th century material which started to fill in that gap. And so there was... I'd have gleefully gone to a whole exhibition on just that. The, there were the what I, I think of as, as the suffragette cartoons display mm-hmm. that they had. Yeah. And there was also this Victorian character called Ali Sloper. Yes. Yeah. Who who was there as a as a sort of um, reprobate and a non hard working um, anti Victorian values bad example, you know, sort of six panels to a page, and you could sort of see the line the line that ran from you know Hogarth or whatever to now, and that was really interesting. I thought, okay, right, I know something that I didn't yeah. know before. I missed quite a lot of that, actually, because that area was so crowded when we went there yes. that it was impossible to see a lot well, of the exhibits. The workflow was terrible. They created this implicit queuing flow and Brit's queue. And it was but so that and also there was, um, in the gore section, yeah. they'd taken um, the police news, kind of the lurid yeah. print tabloid um, Victorian era, contemporary with Ripper killings, mm. and put that next to From Hell. Yeah. And put that next to some other things. And so drawing... So there was a little bit. So a little bit of that was kind of nodding to us and saying, "Books with pictures, twas ever thus," mm. um, and that was that was a little bit cheap. But uh, likewise, the illustrated Bibles. But the, the as you say, the line from how you get from Hogarth, how yeah. you get from something like Police News to to where we are, the fact that it has always existed in some form, but here's how it's changed. Mm. It's always done moralistic finger wagging. It's yeah. always done subversion. It's always done the lurid. It's always this is not new, but here is how we get to something very different. That I found enjoyable. I thought, yeah. I thought it sold me on that. Um, and the angle that takes of it's always been anarchic, kind of, yes, I sort of bought that. But, <laughs> oh, I don't know, it just didn't quite cohere. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing which I was hoping to find out, which I, which I didn't, was, okay, what is happening to this form mm. in the digital world? Yes. What, um, and obviously, you know, the British Library one thinks of as mainly a place that holds physical book-like artefacts, but stuff has been happening to the narrative comic, mm. um, both through through webcomics, which you, you all have talked about, and, and, you know, through being able to read them on, 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 on devices. And that would have been an interesting thing to say, what has happened in the last 10, 15 years this medium, what might happen, mm. that wasn't particularly sort of explored. I think that's quite a hard one to do at the moment because Mm -hmm. I don't think there's been any huge leaps, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think you'd you'd probably have to stretch quite a long way to come up with genuinely useful and informative examples of that. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the really good examples of interesting things done digitally, I can't... All the ones I can think of are Mm -hmm. non-British. So people like Boulay, people like Emily Carroll... Do yeah, maybe Carol might be British. I can't remember. I'm not sure. I can't remember. 
She's either British or American or Canadian. She speaks English. Um, Researchers, please check before transmission. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's just not enough happened yet. I think yeah. mainly because there's not nothing standardised. People mm-hmm. haven't thought about how to present for yeah. fragmented devices, yeah. for example, um, yeah. whether the web page is the standard, whether PDFs are standard, and so on. And so, from from very lay perspective, you've got a, a bunch of different walled gardens and some unwalled gardens. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are some there are some things kind of emerging, but yeah, often the stuff in the walled gardens is. Better. There's some good stuff on Comixology, for example, mm. but quite frankly, every time I boot up that app now and find I can't buy stuff within it, I just get really annoyed and I find that I use it less and less. Yeah. Um, but things like the um, Batman 66, which we talked about on this show, which does good things with digital that aren't sort of full motion comics or adding sound effects or crap like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's little bits and pieces there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it may be we're in the stage. I'm, I'm sort of, for listeners who don't know me, I'm, I'm older and 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 and, and more cynical and, and and less optimistic than the others. Um, I, I, I it, think it, maybe one of those is yeah. true. Um, but I'm just from what you you just said, I'm just reminded of the what happened when desktop publishing first got widely available in the nineties, and people suddenly realised they could do documents with any font in them and they started doing documents and you know flyers for church fakes and so on with 20 fonts in them and it took a while for people just to calm down and realize just because you can do something doesn't mean you should and you know it may be that a an aesthetic a set of tastes about what digital can permit is going to emerge in, in in the next yeah, I, I, it would be nice if that did happen. So, so far it's been remarkably conservative. Mm-hmm. I mean, with most webcomics, um, they're three or six panel newspaper strips. Mm. They're, they're inherently wedded to webcomics a format that is dying in print, but a lot of webcomics are just sticking with the, the three to six panel They've gag been a strip. lot like a grand return to yeah. Yeah, the, funny, the old funny book. Mm. I, don't, I don't mind that, but it's mm. certainly not embracing digital. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just recreating a thing. Well, I rather like that as a sort of as an acknowledgement that digital really isn't a thing. True. Um, so the I only mean, I don't mean that in a conservative way. I mean it's it's like digital marketing. It's just fucking marketing. Grow up and get on with your job. I think that might be a particular bugbear to you. It is, but I go to marketing conferences and I get cross. As you should. If you go to marketing conferences, you shouldn't be having a fun time. Everyone wants you to suffer. I do sometimes watch that Bill Hicks thing afterwards just to, you know, feel better about myself. Take a shower. Listen, I feel like I've stumbled into a marital argument. <laughs> so one thing one thing that surprised me was the whole, uh, look at 2000 AD. Yes. Which is... Yes, there was a lot missing given it had a mandate to be British. Yeah, and 2000 AD stuff is not difficult to come across. So there was a lot of mention of Pat Mills, yep. who founded 2000 AD, mm-hmm. and founded Misty, which was sort of his attempt to do... And 2000 AD has a lot of the social commentary stuff in it as well. That oh, yeah. And a bit riffing on quite yeah. hard. It, it did feel like a yeah. strange omission. Yeah. there's. I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff. That I think the only... Like, Judge Dredd as a subversive um, British take on a sort of all-powerful character set in the US... Um, where you are explicitly asked to sympathise with a fascist, mm-hmm. 
that would have been worth exploring. But what there actually was was this was Carl Urban's helmet from the recent yeah. Dread film that you might yes, have seen. That was wasn't the Sylvester Sloan thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that wasn't. It would have been really that. There really should have been more of that sort of thing. I think. I I mean, it, an awful lot of the political stuff seemed to me oriented in relation to Thatcher. Yes. Yeah. And, a lot of Thatcher. And, and that that comics are what helped us through the, those dark days of the of you know the the the, the, the Blitz or, or or the eighties or whatever. And you can certainly see the argument for that in terms of. V for Vendetta, which we mm. talked about, has been very, very foregrounded. And in terms of the, the... For instance, they had a chunk of the Anti-Clause 28 anthology. Yeah, I was going to say, so right. the queer stuff was very yeah. much... Here's how comics helped us cope yeah. under the shadow of um, media portrayal of the yeah. uh, of the 80s and... I should probably shouldn't use the phrase. That, that particular whirl in the yeah. 80s of big AIDS publicity and of, and of also yeah. Yeah, Section 28. Which, fair, you know, but I there's a lot more to... Subversive queer comics than that, and there was a lot more to the politics of the eighties than subversive queer comics. They, did, to be fair to them, they did have other stuff. So there was the anti-apartheid stuff that was being yes. published in the UK and things like that. So um, they did. There was that puff piece by the Body Shop that was presented totally uncritically. That's also true. Um, and there was some stuff from Oz in the sixties, from memory, mm. wasn't it? But but it just felt that they had the narrative of comics quote grew up in the eighties. The eighties were very political. Let's put the two together, and so I'm, I, I mean, I'm really struggling to think of anything that they were talking about as seriously political from the last ten or fifteen years. Yeah, that was the that uh, there was the, the George W. Bush thing. That's about it. Um, Which was a again a stretch because it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really a comic for one thing because it wasn't. Uh, a narrative form. It's a series of this is the, the, the quote unquote kids book of Tony yes. Blair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 which Special was or whatever it was called. Came out back in the days when we were um, working uh, in a bookshop and was almost exclusively sold at Christmas on tills as a gag stocking filler. It was a four quid add-on. Yeah. So and it's, it's yeah, it's it's not. It's more of a pamphlet than a comic. Um, I don't. Know. I I feel really bad about laying into it because I think. The the exhibition had I, I liked its goals. It showed me some cool things, but I, I but it, again even within that I think some of the work they'd chosen to highlight was just a bit peculiar. Both some of the individual books and some of the pages they picked. But a lot of the display was these sort of half open books held yeah. held up on on stands. In a okay, fuck it. Here's what I think they probably should have done. Well, it's not necessarily practical. You want to be able to explore comics. You want to be able to riffle through them. You want to be able to feel some kind of progression of story. Presenting pages and panels in isolation without presenting much sort of gloss or background leaves this slightly odd freeze-frame feeling and encourages gallery-style veneration, which just didn't work for me, except in a couple of specific cases. What I'd quite like to have seen is the interpretive gloss, the, the kind of the active curation, the information panels and what have you, and then just a shit ton of trade paperbacks. Basically... Maybe behind glass or the no, could completely interactive. Just write off the expenses and getting thumbed. They're not expensive. Um, Laminate them like an Argos catalogue. Just just a fuckload of books that you could actually flick through with some guided reading. So you could have pull out panels in certain sections with exhibition gloss, and then encourage people to actually participate in the text. 
Yeah, I would have, I would have liked to have seen more sort of artifacty type stuff, original artwork, original scripts. Yes. And there were bits, but Which not, actually not much. stands up to presentation yeah. as object a yeah. lot but more strongly. What there actually is, yeah, the books, as you say, do not present well under gallery conditions. I own about 50% of them anyway, and so what I'm getting wandering around is a book that I own held open awkwardly with the barest amount of um, material around it. With an interpretation I largely but not always agree with, opened at a page that isn't the one I'd have chosen. Fair enough, your mileage may vary. but I, So there's, there's an inherent tension in... in in comics, almost, kind of, they're very good at mitigating this. But comics sit on this dynamic static line with narrative. You've got individual pictures that present often a very kinetic feel, sometimes not in yeah. quite opposed and deliberate way. You've got a narrative flow. They are sequential art, but they are at least partially static. Now, putting isolating them in a gallery um, exacerbates that. So little moments out of context presented with curated gloss. And I was very interested going into it to see what the curation choices, what the presentation would do to either mitigate or enhance that dynamic static tension. I thought it could have been very interesting. It just wasn't engaged with even slightly. Now, there's no obligation to, for sure, but just these... Here, here, here's a book open at a page, here are some words about it. The, no one grabbed any of those affordances and tugged to see what would happen. What the... I think you're sort of pushing me to make the sort of counter-argument, but go, go ahead, Dave. No, no, you're fine. The, the counter-argument is this actually in many ways was a sort of model of how you put together an argued sort of exhibition. And the sort of argument, I guess I tried to paraphrase earlier, that this is about comics as the transgressive pushes at the margin yeah. was substantiated with Firstly, a historical argument about how they got there, and secondly, with a bunch of recent examples. Yeah. You can argue with the emphasis. I think they totally. I, I think they totally supported the reading from the text. Yeah, you can you can argue with the the choice of stuff, and there's also there's also a question which we've not much touched on about the weird attitude to, to U.S. comics, which they did bring in once mm. in a while, um, but in a kind what felt like a relatively arbitrary way. Yes. Um, but so I didn't really notice them beyond where it was purely British creators like Preacher, so Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon both being British. The 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 one that jumped out at me, and I'm sure there are others, is the is the uh, Superman smoking thing. Mm. You know where where he's hauling nicotine, oh, yes. um, and and you you have this whatever it was the sort of badge or the the certificate that you get when you, you've yeah. agreed to support Superman. So I think that was a British campaign, but really? it's so aggressively American. Okay, I stand corrected. Uh, which again is my similar feeling about Preacher. Yeah, sure, the creators are British, but they are, and potentially from an outside perspective, but riffing very strongly on America's self-mythology. It's... Yeah. I mean, the, the, there's another thing we're sort of, I suppose, not talking about here, which is, in a sense, this is the, the same as the British the quote-unquote British film industry, mm. which is a lot of the most high-profile projects, may have British talent attached, but mm. essentially done with US money. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of things that are a British film because the studio shots were done here because Pinewood is yeah. a larger stage than yeah. most that exist anywhere else. Yes. Uh, well, to what to what extent is James Bond, for instance, a British film? Or Young Avengers as a yeah. comic series. Is Young Avengers a British or American comic? You could really take that both ways. Yeah, I, you could, and things like Hellblazer as well. Um, Vertigo at the time was almost exclusively British. It was kind of based here, mostly mm. British creators. Um, 
but it's published by DC. It sits within the wider DC universe, at least yeah. Hellblazer does not all of it. Um, so you have to look at those creators because they're there and the people like Garth Ennis and Stu Dillon, who for the majority of their careers have worked for the large American publishers. Mm. Um, but, it's, but it's all. I think a, a better thing to have looked at would have been what's sort of commonly referred to as the British invasion of the 80s, where mm. suddenly Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman mm. were writing large amounts of very mainstream American comics mm. and subverted them completely. Stuff like whatever yeah, like what, whatever happened to The Man of Tomorrow, which is Alan mm. Moore doing Superman, yeah. would have been a much more interesting thing of here is, you know, what at that time would have been a 50, 60 year old character yeah. um, being totally undone by these British upstarts. Mm. That would have fit the remit of British comics and British creators as, as anarchic. The dark, as the Dark Asylum. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Arkham no, there Asylum was Arkham Asylum. Asylum. There was the Joker mask and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Again, not really. Okay, so this is another thing breadth rather than depth. And again, I, 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 I think I yeah. do agree with you that effectively. Yeah, this might not be quite what you mean, but mm-hmm. the stuff I'm complaining about is probably reasonable collateral damage in the course of try- the, yeah. the, the exhibition trying to make its point. Yeah, um, I, I, I'll buy that. But one of those sacrifices was was breadth, uh, depth for breadth, right? So yeah. in order to support the idea that there are all of these little nodules of anarchy hanging off a comics tradition that is completely in line with some kind of fundamental sense of mischief in the British literary character... My next band name is going to be Nodules for Anarchy, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, you need to flash a lot of your nodules at the general public. and um, Move on. But you only get a brief glimpse of any individual one. Move on, Roger. Sorry. <laughs> the point has been made, and we'll leave it to history to decide whether it was made well. <laughs> um, was that even passingly coherent? Breath, death, sacrifice, it's pretty yeah. obvious. We um, get it, the nodules. Yeah. But actually, this is something that I, I both... Rolled my eyes at. Was also glad there. I was initially glad there wasn't more of, and then thought actually no, there's a legitimate space for more. So um, at some point in one of the podcasts, we might actually talk about national identity. But one one of the things that often gets attached to concepts of Britishness, I don't want to get into this in too much detail, is is a sense of quite bounded but quite playful subversion, a, a sort of you know nudging at authority and slight. Mm-hmm. Measured subversiveness. Um, it's so it's is, pulling their pants down rather than hitting them with a stick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is basically that 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 sentiment kind of kicks off the entire plot of the Diamond Age. Yeah, that that thing, that idea of subversion in the national character. Yeah, and, and Punch and Judy is right yes. up there at the start. Yeah, yeah. So it starts with Punch and Judy, and later there's some Lord, Lord Snooty. And you you quite bits. you got quite annoyed very very pretty much straight away at Punch and Judy for looking just at the British. Um, Victorian interpretation of Punch and Judy and not mentioning the sort of earlier Italian... Well, and well, but the thing that actually annoyed me about that was it was the first thing I saw and I just thought there was a, some old Punch and Judy puppets, some Punch and Judy wood, uh, prints, and then the McKean Gaiman thing. Yeah, the, pu- mm-hmm. the puppets were the ones from that, the, the, the yeah. ones that were used in the photography section. I looked at that and thought, oh God, is the whole thing going to be this? Is it really just going to be... Hey, look! We've always had books with pictures, kids. It's part of the British tradition, and it wasn't that. There was a little bit of that, but it wasn't that so painfully. Um, you were so primed to be angry. It's my thing. Well, I'm drinking. Um, 
Yes. So there, there was a certain amount of kind of playful satirical sketches, things from Punch magazine, mm. uh, a certain amount alighting on this this subversive British note. I think just the right amount. And what it could so easily have been talking about comics in the British tradition is just shit tons of the Beano. It could just easily mm. have been bad. The things that people that don't really do their homework think of as all British comics are. I mean, wasn't there a review of it, a review of the expedition that basically basically whinged that it wasn't? Just there was Beano. one in the I think there was the Telegraph, which I'm was not surprised. I read the Beano growing up. Where's the Beano? What's this stuff? Yeah. Um, um, I was terribly worried that it would just be that, that it would be someone's gross misdigestion of the British comics tradition. But actually, because they were making this point about anarchy, I felt there was space for a bit more. I'd have liked to see a little bit more, not Lord Snoopy, maybe. There was nothing from the Beano, I don't think. There was one piece from the Dandy that was, um, I think, Jonah, the sort of the unfortunate mm-hmm. sailor with the buck yeah. teeth, was a Dandy strip. There was a bit of, there was a bit of Dandare, kind of the Eagle era was, stuff. Yeah. That's good. That was, it was nice to see that. And then there was the, the Grant Morrison thing mm-hmm. from 1990 or so, where mm-hmm. sort of an aging Dandare is, is thrust out in front of, as, as a sort of propaganda piece mm-hmm. in, in front of uh, the population and, it goes to a dark place. Yeah. Um, there's, but the, so there's this maybe this small missing piece. They didn't have to have this, but I don't know. I might have liked it. Maybe I'd have thought it was glib. But there's kind of... Let me put it this way. I would not want to be tasked with creating something that was designed to please explicitly you. That would be <laughs> awful. And probably contravention of many laws. Yeah. There'd be a lot of sherry to help you get through it, though. Yeah, and and and, and 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 I guess the the other problem we're describing here is comics fandom, whatever you want to call it, is a pluralism. Yes. Yeah. And there'll be a bunch of people who go along to this who, who miss the Beano. There'll be a bunch of people who go along to this who haven't, as it were, particularly seen the political aspect of it. You know, mm. this is because it's an argued exhibition and not just mm, yeah. an attempt at a historical survey of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Which is is fair. I just thought. Um, I wonder who the audience was. So, I think this very is the, general. This is something I found myself struggling with: was that we're going to see a bit of value in it. People that know nothing about comics would probably get quite a lot out of it, except it's ten quid at the British Library, and maybe I'm being harsh here, but that's not a natural casual play. Like I, it was busy enough. True. True. Um, it was definitely busy enough, but at the same time, I I found that that meant that. I was only picking up snatches of it where I could actually see round people or conceive of waiting yeah. until they'd, they'd moved. I mean, if it was, as I kind of think it is, a a walk-through Sunday supplement piece, then I think it did its job very well. Uh, yeah, I, so it does It does have, as, as you said, breadth rather than depth. Um, and it must be nightmarishly hard to curate anything like that. Yes, I, I wouldn't want to... I talked to some people curating a thing at, well, redesigning the money gallery at the um, uh, British Museum. Mm. You may remember we, I think we went for yeah, drinks, yeah. drinks yeah. after that. Um, and they were talking about kind of what goes into exhibition interpretation and curation and exhibition design. And it's it's insanely involved. It reminded me of nothing so much as user experience design on a software project. Um, and these guys had a comics on Mars. Just this phenomenal corpus to draw from, and I, I think, broadly speaking, did an okay job. But hmm. yeah, so one one thing I would say is, given given that most of what they were presenting was just 
standard printed editions of the books. Mm-hmm. There were some odd choices. If they'd been restricted to, well, we've got this beautiful original that's been loaned to us by Luminary X, Y, or Z, then we're going to hang something off that. That would have been fine. But when you're really just dealing with printed books, there are some, some odd things to choose in there. Yeah, this, which which odd things are you thinking of? The body shop one that Roger mm. mentioned, um, mm. which was corporate propaganda. Fight for the forest, um, I think it was called, or battle for the forest. Yeah, it was a piece published. So back when the body shop were trying to establish themselves very aggressively in the eighties and nineties as sort of the shower gel version of Greenpeace, uh, and do you know what? Actually, they kind of. They sort of get a pass on this one. They do some good stuff, and they behave poorly yeah. ethically. Less so these days. So, but let, let's not, so Young Avengers, which I do love, but really was there to just say, "Look, look, you've heard mm-hmm. of the Avengers, right? Yeah, yeah. British people write that now." Um, things like that. Things like they didn't need to be quite so much Hellblazer. They didn't need to be quite so much. Um, Pat Mills and Brian Talbot, it felt like Pat Mills and Brian Talbot were being shoehorned into everything. And they are definitely important UK creators. They absolutely, mm-hmm. they, they both are. They've been mainstays of UK um, sci-fi and periodic comics since the 1970s. But at the same time, there are other people out there who would have been useful to look at at the same time. Um, yeah, they... they... I think my beef on also was just yeah I did I wasn't totally sure about why some of the individual pages in individual books so um, I don't know why they focused on the the, the two page spread they did from season of mists for instance um, or some of the particular Hellblazer things um, whereas some of the selections were very good the selection from Halo Jones was really sold the tone yeah um, the selection from Lighter Than My Shadow was not bad so I was I, they had an excerpt there there was a brief in the reflecting yeah. diversity section. I don't want to get into this too hard, but I read an extraordinarily po-faced review about that, claiming that they've done a terrible job of reflecting diversity. Personally, because? I, um, as far as I could tell, insufficient hand-wringing about privilege, uh, which is not something that I should dismiss as lightly as I'm about to. But, it, it, that, so... Um, Be careful. Yeah. It, it, this, this is a room full of white guys here. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. I, I, I we felt, are down on diversity today. I felt that the... I felt it did quite a good job of pointing up its own... So, early on it pointed out the fact that British comics have been dominated by white men. Yeah. And then went on to show mostly comics by white men. And whilst pointing out the problem is not the same as fixing the problem, I think pointing out the problem gets you a reasonable distance. Um, and whenever it shows something problematic, with one exception of the um, I was a um, Japanese prisoner comic, uh, it pretty heavily caveated this is kind of objectionable in this way, this is the context of its creation and its reading. Mm-hmm. I thought it did a pretty good job of that. The, the, the blog post I read yeah. seemed to think it had done a terrible job, but probably had a different perspective to mine. But the, the, the counter-argument, I suppose, would be, should they not have gone out and looked for more stuff by... Arguably, in fact, probably. Yeah. Um, yes, okay. Yeah, definitely it would have been nice to see more. I don't buy the argument about... It, about insufficient handwriting over the things that were wrong with the things that were presented but yes it would have been nice to, to have been to have seen more actual diversity rather than a few other bits of text saying here is a lack of diversity yeah that's yeah. that's totally true. sort of taking off from what roger was saying earlier about um 
the two ways that you experience comics that you know this exhibition presented you with them as you know a static page but they're something that you by and large move through in a in a linear kind of way and i found myself having i guess some similar thoughts about what i think is a very interesting theater thing that's going on at the moment called the drowned man Oh, I, I yeah. This is the very much the audience participation which, thing, which is which is um, running, I think, till the start of July. Oh, it's long, um, and um, which is presented in a disused postal sorting office just by Paddington Station by a theatre company called Punch Drunk. And the deal is, you show up, you are given a mask, which you are told that you have to wear at all times. You're told that you'll, you have to be silent and you're shoved into a lift and you're shoved out into this environment which is dressed up as a Hollywood studio and the, the town around it and a desert and you know, various other locations. And so you wander around this environment and you can, you at a certain point for instance, run into characters. And they may be the sort of main characters in the story. They may be subsidiary characters. And the point is that for three hours, you make the choices about how you put the narrative together. Um, do you follow a character? Do you stay in the same place? Do you um, do you just wander randomly? And I suppose I just mention it because I've been I've been listening to academics for years and years and years, saying, oh, you know. Choose your own adventure is the future of narrative because it allows choices. And choose your own adventure doesn't really. Video games are the future of narrative, but you know, something like Half Life, you're still massively constrained by what you can do. And I, I, this just felt like the first time where I've actually had that. Mm-hmm. Okay, here is a genuinely open space in which to create a narrative thing. The thing with I think the the difference between that and something like a video game yeah. is. It's a linear narrative and you choose how to engage with it. Mm. Whereas in something like a video game, the narrative still reacts to you, but mm. someone has written different versions of it. Yeah. Um, so how satisfying those are still relies on how well they're written. Yeah. Um, as opposed to something like this, which is very much how you choose to interpret it. Yeah. Um I suppose I suppose the other thing to say is it's not quite linear in the show's three hours long, but essentially it's three one hour loops. Right. And so with the third loop ending in a sort of slightly more definitive kind of a way. Mm. I was gonna ask precisely how it worked. I had the question for me on the tip of my tongue is had any design steps been taken to ensure that you can't Leave with nothing. You, it's well, it's. I mean, the space is huge, and so mm. you could, I suppose, imaginably wander around all evening without running into anyone. Mm. But there are five hundred, six hundred audience members yeah. there. So you are you are fundamentally likely to encounter yeah. enough bits of the story. Yeah. That on balance, you will have some version of the narrative experience. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and the you know without spoiling it the. The, the end to the third loop wraps up a number of things. I'd be fascinated to see that from a couple of perspectives, one of which is um, way showing and, and way finding, mm-hmm. but um, navigation design. 
So in something like that, there'll be lots of environmental cues. You mentioned yeah. Half-Life, so Valve yeah. are very good at showing you where to go by manipulating light yeah. and different levels of detail, yeah. which the set design could do. But something that humans are very good at is social way showing and social way finding. And I imagine that where you've got set pieces, people will, I assume, tend yeah. to follow crowds or bunch together, well, and then some people will deliberately disperse. They use they use a ton of different cues. So firstly, the whole space is fairly dimly lit, hmm. and so lighting to highlight stuff is very much used. Secondly, there are some spaces which you know are framed in a certain way. So mild spoiler. One big environment is the gate to the studio, yeah. which is open or closed mm. depending on what's happening, and so that you know frames a certain amount of a certain amount of action. Mm. Um, they also um, you know use um, smells quite extensively. Right. So, for instance, you can tell when a motel room has just been cleaned. You can tell um, you know the desert is a very different environment from um, the inside of the studio, whatever. Um, okay. And so you are you are not steered in that way, but you are cued, if I can make that yeah. distinction. When I, when I first heard this described, I very much didn't want to see it because it sounded like a very expensive version of all that's bad in experimental theatre. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can see that. But I, this actually sounds like a very interesting way of doing a well, narrative experience. I mean, I suppose the other the other nerd thing to say is that it reactivated my long-vanished Dungeons & Dragons gene. <laughs> and, you know, you start thinking of mapping the level mm. and, 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 and all that stuff. Um, and um, they deliberately do a number of things to try and disorient you. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's not a question of, quote, understanding it. It's a question of just, to a certain extent, know, knowing knowing the, the terrain in a certain way. Yeah. Is it hinged off of... So, um, Sleep No More was kind of Macbeth, yeah. right? Sleep, Sleep No More is the show they have running in, in New York, and it's Macbeth plus Hitchcock's Vertigo plus Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. This is... In space! Sorry. <laughs> I'm giving I'm giving Dave a very stern look at this. <laughs> um, this I like high concept. I, 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 this is sort of Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust um, crossed with Buchner's play Wojciech about infidelity mm. and such like. Heard of, not familiar with. Um, and bits and pieces Didn't, of other things. Uh, Werner Herzog did a... Didn't a film adaptation of Wojciech, didn't he? Um, if I'm right, and I've, I've not done the homework and sat down and read it, um, the, the point about Wojciech is it's a series of fragmentary scenes left unfinished. Right. Um, and so th there are, A, a number of different translations and arrangements of it, and B, it, a number of different versions spinning off from that. Okay. You know, there's right. certainly, if I if if I understand the, the briefing rightly, there's no definitive version of what the narrative is. Right. The the Herzog film is the the guardsman. Yeah. Um, and it's just is. It's it's Werner Herzog and um. The actor who always works the Herzog. My mind's gone back. That guy. It's Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski, and it's uh, deranged. I, I, I don't I don't want this to go any further though. I don't want to 
being an immersive theatre experience designed by Werner Herzog. With the corpse of Klaus Kinski just being dragged they, along the rafters. I think they just make you eat yogurt while crying. So, Comics Unmasked. I cannot hardly recommend it. Although, it should be said that they are running guided tours as well after the main gallery closes, which I might... I think that would be much more interesting. Yeah. Um, if only to get a little extra context and give you time to look at the yep. exhibits. I think if um, you happen to be around, and if you've got the time, it's a good way of seeing quite a lot of stuff. And although I don't consistently agree with it, it makes its point quite well. But go in with primed expectations of gaps and problems. Yeah. I think that's... Graham, you seem to have enjoyed it more than Roger or myself, I think. But I'm... But just barely. Yeah, but I'm, recre- <laughs> I'm recreationally angry. Um, yeah, I mean, lots of interesting stuff there. Um, lots of um, artefacts you wouldn't see in one place. Lots of, as I say, gaps in my knowledge felt. And when you get out to the gift shop, there's a load of Biff Bang Pow oh, covered. Oh, fuck's sake. Uh, everyone sighs at once. That's good. That's good. You can buy a Kapow cushion if you like. Well, it, this is the thing that you said about football writing, right? Yeah, it's, uh, the Biff Bang Pal thing is inherently an annoying and lazy writing, and it's it's like having every article on football with a subheading, it's a game of two halves. Because every single piece of comics writing just says Biff Bang Pal. Usually followed by comics are not for kids anymore, or if it's about kids' comics, comics really are for kids. Yeah. Fuckers. So, Comics Unmasked is not that lazy, but it's also less than it perhaps could have been. Yeah. So Your assignment for next week is what would you have done with the British Library's resources and that degree of space? This is what I've been thinking about, actually. Um, I guess we'll, well, I'll come in, I'll come in with plans. Okay. Drawn in crayon. Um, it'll be, it'll be good. Maybe I could do them as a comic. This isn't going to be like that time you showed me those finger paintings and tried to get me to join you on a bank heist, right? It's going to be a lot like that. Oh. If anything, there's going to be more bank heists. I just don't like banks. Graham, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an experience. Roger, you're always here. I mean, this is your house, so... Yes, get out. Goodbye. Keep it high, Graham, they said. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Wrong hand for this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, you want on the back of the left hand where you just wrote dick jokes? (laughs)